Thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque. It's our hope that this message will help you grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, we have prepared our hearts to be here this morning. And now we are here. And we do ask and expect a word from heaven for us. That your Holy Spirit will speak to us as a church and to us as individual members of the body of Christ. And Lord, we will say right now that we want you to do that and that we will listen and we will apply to our own lives. And we are open to what you say. That's part of our worship. We give you now our full attention. In Jesus' name, amen. True story. January 26th, in Saxony, Germany, a 23-year-old driver was going way too fast in his car. And as he was speeding down the roadway, and he didn't see the bend in the road, his car went off the road, into the ditch, up a ravine, and launched 35 yards into the air, and landed in the second story of a church building. A freak accident. You see, attending church for the wrong reasons <laughs> isn't always great to do. True story. Never happened before. This is probably the closest this guy's come to church in a long time. Now, there were three churches in a small Midwestern town. One was a Presbyterian church, the other was a Methodist church, and the other was a Baptist church. And the whole town had a problem, including these church buildings, and that was an infestation of squirrels that year. So the church leadership of all three organizations decided to get together to find out what we do with them. The Presbyterian leadership got together and felt that God predestined the squirrels to be there, so they were just going to live with them. The Methodists decided that they would treat the squirrels in a loving way with the spirit of Charles Wesley and humanely capture them and move them to a secure location at the edge of town and release them, which they did. In three weeks, they were all back. The Baptists, it seems, had the best idea. They voted the squirrels in as members of their church, <laughs> baptized them, and they said they haven't seen them except for Christmas and Easter. If you know anything about the background of those organizations, you'll appreciate that. It's clear that many people see church, and in particular church attendance, as optional and non-essential. Perhaps the problem is with the church itself. And I don't mean a particular church. I'm speaking of all of us in general. God's people. Perhaps the problem is with the church itself. Perhaps we have forgotten or maybe never really were in touch with the whole purpose of our existence. Why do we exist? What is our purpose? What is God's vision for the church? Or to put it in terms of our title this week and last week, what kind of church would Jesus attend? 
It's easy to answer the question simply by reading the words of our Lord himself. And John 17 is a great place for that because it's the longest recorded and most intimate communication of Jesus with the Father before he's about to be crucified. And in this prayer, there are four characteristics that Jesus wants for his followers and thus wants for his church. Number one, it should be a place that radiates the glory of God. That's number one on the list. We should be all about making him famous and declaring his name, and it's all about him. Number two, it should be a place that reveals God's truth, preaches his word, is unashamed of the gospel, teaches people the truth week by week. And number three and four, are we going to cover this week, two more qualities. And both of these qualities really speak to how we interface with the outside world. One thing we must never do. We must never become so heavenly-minded that we are no earthly good. We have been accused of that throughout history, that the church is so heavenly-minded they're no earthly good. However, there is some dispute as to what it means to be earthly good. and We're going to discuss a little of that today. I heard about a man who was visiting New York City, and he walked by a store, and he noticed a sign in the window that said Chinese laundry. He was on his way to dinner, and so he made a mental note. He goes, okay, i got to remember this. Next day, he shows up at that store with his laundry. He needs to get it washed. He walks into the store, plops it on the counter, and says to the clerk, I want it washed. And the clerk says, you want it What? I want it washed. And I've always heard that Chinese laundries do the best work. And the man smiled and said, Sir, this is not a Chinese laundry. This is a sign shop. I'm going to let that sink in a little bit. So you get that. But that was one of the signs of the many signs in the window that he saw. Chinese laundry. This is not a laundromat. This is a sign shop. Well, I share that with you because... I think churches can send out false signals about their purpose. That is, people come with soiled lives. And the cross is just a sign. Could be inside the church, could be outside the church. We got the sign, but the people inside are not equipped to take soiled lives and disciple them and get them out of darkness into light. So... Let's look at the final two characteristics of the church Jesus would attend. Number one, or in the outline actually, number three, is it's one that rescues the enemies of God. Now when I say enemies, I mean everybody who's not a believer. The Bible says is at enmity with God. You know, you're either uh, Jesus' friend or you're not. You're either for him or against him. And we should be about rescuing the enemies of God. Look at verse 14. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them because they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. I do not pray that you should take them out of the world, but that you should keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. And look at the 20th verse. I do not pray for these alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. 
it's pretty clear then that Jesus was giving a commission to his followers of evangelism, to be sent out. In fact, the word to be sent is apostello. We get the word apostle from it. It means to be sent out and go on a mission. Even as I have come and gone on a mission, I'm sending them out on a mission. So he anticipates that the church, his followers, will go out and do evangelism and have success at their evangelism. That's what verse 20 is all about. Those who will believe in me through their word. Now, for all of my hyper-Calvinist friends, I share verse 20 with you. I want you to notice that God not only elects people, but he elects the means by which those people come to him. And it is through the word or the testimony of his followers, whether that's one-on-one evangelism or the testimony is mass evangelism, God ordains that means by which they come. So, Jesus came to rescue people. I have been sent into the world. In verse 4, he says, I have finished the work that you have given me to do, and he will do that at the cross. And then he went to heaven back, ascended. Now we are sent into the world, so here's the thrust. Jesus is all about rescuing people, and he uses his ambassadors, us, to do that. Here's my mega point that I want to make. Church is not primarily a bless me club. Church is not primarily a entertain me club or pick me up club or help me club, though we should be blessed and helped and ministered to, no question. It is not a place where primarily we should turn inward and really make it about ourselves, except that we are prepared to do something out there. And that is rescue people. Somebody said, church is the only society on earth that exists for the benefit of non-members. Do you recall what, what our Lord said to his followers that instead of looking within, he says, lift up your eyes and look at the fields that they're white. It's a, it's a great statement. Look around, disciples. Look around at your world in any generation at any time and notice that the fields are already white for the harvest. And he continued, and he who reaps gathers fruit for eternal life. Now, it can happen and often does that over time churches, organizations will turn inward to themselves. Even though Jesus said, go into all the world, Somehow we have learned to interpret that as Jesus saying, Come ye to our churches. Instead of church, go ye to the world. And I do think that evangelism can take place in church, at our meetings. It often does. But that's only the beginning. We are to go. We are to be sent. In fact, one of the healthiest patterns, and I see it here so often, is the pattern of saved, serving, and sent. So many times I've watched people come forward and I've watched them and led them in a prayer to receive Christ. And then after a period of time, they get involved. They start serving the body and serving one another. And then they decide they want to be sent out to the mission field or to start a church or lead a group. But I often see a very good and healthy pattern of saved, serving, and sent. 
I've been reading a book lately. I didn't bring it with me, but I want to share some of the thoughts. It's about the church, and every time I do a series, I like to take a couple books that will inspire me afresh. And this is a book by a 90-some-year-old man named John Stott. I've read a lot of his books over the years. He just put out a new one called The Living Church. And this 90-plus elder church statesman says he believes that historically the church has failed in precisely this point of rescuing the enemies of God or evangelism. And it's because historically, he says, we have suffered from a false identity. He said the church often becomes one of two things, either A, a religious club. It's a religious club. It's about our club. It's our country club. Our members come, and we enjoy the benefits of our club, and it's about our club and what we do at our club. And do you like our clubhouse? It's a religious club. It's all about the private benefits of the members. This is introverted Christianity, says Stott. The other false identity that can happen is it becomes a secular club. It's all about social service for the community. Well, the church exists not to worry about heaven or hell or eternity or the gospel, but we got to help people in our community, in our town. So it essentially is Christianity without Christ. I believe both can be done. Both a vertical relationship with God of worship and glorifying Him, while at the same time we can adequately, wonderfully serve our community. But, this is vital, the primary way we can best serve our community is to give them the life-changing gospel message that will get them to heaven. Please understand that. If we give people um, food and band-aids and say nothing about how to get to heaven, then all we do is make them feel really good on their way to hell. I don't know any other way to put that except baseline. So the primary way we can serve our community is to be a sufficient light so as to get them from this earth into heaven. It says John Stott, if all churches had been faithful to this, the world would long ago have been evangelized. How do we do that? Well, according to Jesus, I think there's three ways we do it. We do it by knowing something, we do it by growing in that something, and we do it by going out into the world. Knowing your position, growing in preparation, and going out into the world. First of all, you got to know who you are. If you don't know who you are and, and what you're up against, we'll never do anybody any good. So this is what we're to know. Look at verse 16. They, that would be us, his followers, in context, his disciples, they are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Verse 18, as you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. That's your position. You're in the world, but you are not of the world. Now, please understand what that means. What the Bible refers to as world, cosmos, doesn't mean the earth or necessarily people, but it refers to a system, a system. The world is a system of belief and activities that is hostile against God. 
and it is controlled by the devil. He is called the prince of this world. He's called the god of this world. So it's the world system and ideology that is opposed to God and especially Christ. Jesus came here to rescue people. He came here to rescue people. And then he said, I'm sending them out in the world, though they're not of it. They don't fit into, they're separate from the ideology of this world. But I sent them out to do a task. So why is it then? That since we're in this world, but now that we're believers, we're not of its system any longer. Why are we so occupied, or should I even say preoccupied, with the world values? Dwight Lyman Moody from Chicago a century ago said, The church reminded him of firemen straightening pictures on the wall of a burning house. What, what a picture that is, is it not? Fireman goes in, the house is burning, and one guy goes, you know, I don't think that picture looks quite right. I, just, just move it. A, what are you doing? The house is burning down. There's bigger fish to fry here. Moody said, the church can remind me of that. So we need to know our position. We're in it. We're not of it. Number two, we need to be growing. We need to be growing in our preparation. That's verse 17, which we touched on last week sanctify them or separate them or make them holy by your truth. Your word is truth. Okay, so here Jesus says they're in the world but not of the world. Okay? I remember something very vividly. It wasn't long after I prayed to receive Christ back in 19... long time ago that I felt like I didn't fit any longer. I, I, I was a fish out of water. I felt like when I went back to my old friends and my old digs and started hanging out again, I just thought, I am not in my element. This is not who I am anymore. I, I remember feeling that. It's because I'm in it, but I'm not of it. But for me to be in it and survive well and make an impact well, I, I need some preparation. And that's verse 17. I get sanctified, made holy by God's truth, which is his word. So this is what we're like. We're like astronauts. Now, you can't go to space just as you are. It's not your element. You need a specialized suit, a pressurized suit, that gives you the elements of the earth to survive in a hostile environment. Or if you were to try to go under the water, you can't breathe water. You need a special pressurized suit that gives you the surrounding elements of this environment for you to survive. And so it is as believers. This world is in our element. The only way we're going to survive the pressure of this world and its system poised against God is to have sufficient pressure from within by the Holy Spirit working through the Word of God, which is truth, which sanctifies us. That pressure... That realignment week by week, day by day, is what prepares us for the next phase. So we need to know, we need to grow, and then we need to go. That's the third part of this. We need to go. See, our knowing and our growing should always lead to going. And I'll tell you what, it's really bad news when it doesn't. It's really bad news when we know who we are and we start growing in our knowledge and become very theologically adept and we know the fine points of theology and we do nothing with that for the world. 
we become fat and sassy, spiritually speaking. We need to exercise. We need to be going. That's the whole point of verse 18. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. I've discovered there's five responses that Christians have toward the world. And I think only one of them is the best response. And it's the last one. One response that Christians have had to the world around them is to isolate. Is to isolate. The world's bad. Got to get away from the world. Don't want anything to do with the world. I'll move away from it. That that was the whole basis of the monastic movement. Monasteries. The only way we'll survive is for us to leave that and get away over here by ourselves. That's to isolate. Number two is to insulate. To insulate. It's also not a good strategy. It's very similar to the first, but it's a little bit different. This is the belief that says, okay, the world is bad and I've got to protect myself and protect my children and protect my family and remove them from certain institutions and remove us from certain things and just sit here in this little bastion of Christianity and point at all the bad things in the world. There's a third response people have had, and that is to vegetate. Vegetate. They become very apathetic. Very apathetic. They know truth, but they have no passion for lost people at all. They don't witness to anybody. They don't care. Their primary concern is their own personal comfort. And that's a very sad place to be in, where you just vegetate. Whatever, dude. There's a fourth response, and that is to imitate the world. I want to just be like the world their values. I'll see what they see. I'll listen to what they listen to. I'll watch what they watch. I'll go where they go. And then it gets even worse when that's taken into the church and says, okay, let's make the church just like the world. We'll do everything they do. And we'll take all the songs about Jesus and his blood out of the church and make every unbeliever just feel really good about their sin. And they can come here and we'll ape the world. None of those are great strategies. The best strategy is to know, to grow, and then to go. Or, here's the fifth one, permeate. To permeate or to penetrate the world. Rescue souls. Engage the unbelieving world. Engage them. Here we are today. We're salt. Isn't that what Jesus called us? How many would agree that we're salt? Well, a lot more of you need to agree because Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth. And isn't it great to get together in the salt shaker? Doesn't it feel really good to get all shaken up together? It's cool. I love it. I really do. But when we leave, we got to do this. (laughs) Turn that salt shaker over. Get out into the world and engage the world and tell them the good news. There's a a story, though. You don't have to turn to it now. If you're not familiar with it, jot this down for later. 2 Kings chapter 7. 2 Kings 7. There's a story about four dudes. Okay, I'm, I'm paraphrasing, admittedly. Four leprous dudes. How's that? Four leprous men at the gate of Samaria. You remember that story? Now, they're dying of leprosy and starvation because there's a famine. There's a famine in their city. And one guy, one day, looks at the other guys and he says, why are we sitting here until we die? If we go back into the city, we're going to die because there's a famine. There's no food. If we stay here, we're going to die. But if we go to the enemy's camp and surrender, we might live. They might accept us and at least they'll feed us. 
Now, they might not. They'll kill us. But what do we care? We're going to die anyway if we sit here. Why do we sit here till we die? So they go into the enemy's camp. You know what they found? Nobody. They had all left, and they left all their food behind. And so these leprous guys went into the tent and started taking clothes and food and hoarding it and hoarding it. And one of them said, the thing that we're doing is not right. This is a day of good news, and yet we remain silent. This is a day of good news. We need to go back to our town, Samaria, and tell everybody we discovered a food supply. We've got to let this good news go. You know what? Ladies and gentlemen, this is a day of good news. We cannot keep silent. We've got to tell people how to get from earth to heaven through Jesus Christ. Next, and finally, we are to be a church, and one that I believe Jesus would attend, is one that rallies over the love of God. This is the final point. One that rallies over the love of God. In verse 20, you'll notice that Jesus is praying for you. I do not pray for these, that is, these disciples alone, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. How many of you have believed in Jesus through the word of the apostles? I have. We all have. They wrote it down for us. So now Jesus prays for us. Notice what he prays. Verse 21. That they may all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I in them, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that you sent me. And the glory which you gave me I have given them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I in them... You and me, that they may be made perfect in one, that the world may know that you sent me and have loved them as you've loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you gave me, may be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory, which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, the world has not known you, but I have known you, and these have known that you sent me. And I have declared to them your name and will declare it that the love with which you loved me may be in them and I in them. Now, boy, is that a mouthful. Let me distill it for you. Jesus is simply praying for unity based upon truth and love. That's the nutshell. That's the kernel. Unity among his followers based upon truth and love. And he prays four times for this in this prayer. Four times. As if to say, Father, this is really important. And for those of us who read it, this is really important. You got to do this. You really got to do this. So four times we get the message that we are to have unity. How can we ever preach the gospel of the love of God unless we display that love one to another? Doesn't that make sense? That's what Jesus is praying. Now, what does the Bible mean when it speaks of unity? Well, please hear me out. Let me tell you what it doesn't mean, first of all. It doesn't mean uniformity or unanimity, that we're all going to agree on everything. And can't we all just get together, every Christian or every believer of anything, and just hold hands and sing kumbaya in a large chanting, can't do that, not going to work, get it out of your mind. It doesn't mean that we're going to agree on everything, Also, doesn't mean that we have to wear the same clothes, 
vote exactly the same way, read the King James Bible only. When the Bible speaks about unity, it doesn't refer to that. You know, sort of like a a, a real family, a family here. If you have more than one child, if you have several kids, they're all different, and they do not agree on everything. One might be um, very vocal. One may be very quiet. I know some of you are thinking, Lord, give me one of those. (laughs) I don't have one of those. One might be a morning person. One might be a night person. We're all different. And even in God's family, we don't agree on everything. We don't hold the same position on every single thing, and that's okay. You know, the disciples didn't get along. Peter and Paul didn't agree. In Galatians, uh, Barnabas in the book of Acts, along with Paul, had an argument. They didn't agree on certain things. Both brothers in Christ. And so today, there are some Christians who are premillennial. I'm one of those. Others are amillennial. I pray for those all the time. But they're my brothers in Christ and sisters in Christ. Some are pre-tribulational in our eschatology. Others are post-toasties in their eschatology. I think we're going to go through the tribulation. Some in their style of worship are different. Some like choirs and robes and the organ. Others like granola and guitars and the whole other thing. And that's okay. I am so glad that there are a variety of churches and organizations to accommodate those different styles. But when it comes to unity, there are certain things we're together on. And what does Jesus mean by it? I'll show you in verse 8 through 11. For I have given to them the words which you have given me, and they have received them, and have known surely that I came forth from you, and have believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I do not pray for the world, but for those you have given me, for they're yours. And all mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. Now I am no longer in the world, but these are in the world, and I come to you, Holy Father. Keep through your name those whom you have given me, that they may be one as we are one. So what is this unity Jesus speaks of? Here it is. Unity based upon truth, and specifically the truth about Jesus Christ. So this is what it means. You're a Christian in exactly the same way I'm a Christian. You believe that God sent Jesus into the world and that his sacrifice on the cross is enough. I believe that too. You believe that the only Savior of the world is Jesus Christ. I believe that too. We are united in the person and work of Jesus Christ because that's essential. That's essential. Who God is, who Jesus is, that he is God in human flesh, that he paid the sacrifice for our sins. All of that truth about Jesus is essential for salvation. But then there are certain things that are not essential. Which Bible version you read? Not essential. Which way you're baptized? Not really essential. Do you speak in tongues or not? Not really essential. Uh, When the rapture happens? Not really essential. Now some will disagree. That is an essential. Then we got to talk to you later because there's some issues there. These are non-essentials. And what Augustine said is this. In essentials, unity. In non-essentials, liberty. In all things, charity. Love. In all things, love. Now, why does Jesus pray for this four times in his prayer? Verse 21 tells you why. That the world may believe that you sent me. 
I just want that part to sink in more probably than any other part of this message that the world may believe that you sent me. Father, the world is going to believe that you sent me if they're one, if they have unity, if they unify over the essentials and not worry about the non-essentials. The world will believe it. Here's a problem that we have. Follow me here. A problem that we have in our evangelism, our testimony to the world, is God is invisible. It poses a problem. We're telling people about God. They can't see Him. And so that's why they're going, well, prove God exists. And I'll tell you what will help is when they see us loving each other. By our love, we are making the invisible God more visible. Now, I want you to see this from Scripture. I'm going to read to you 1 John chapter 4, verse 12. No one has ever seen God, but if we love each other, God lives in us and his love is brought to full expression in us. You see that? By our love for one another, we are making invisible God more visible to an unbelieving world. No wonder we're called the body of Christ. That's visible. We're the body of Christ. Jesus Christ in his physical body ascended into heaven. You can't see him any longer last 2,000 years. The only way God will be made visible is by us, and it begins in loving each other. So we prove the reality of our message by our love for one another, our unity. Flip the coin. What would our disunity prove to the world? What would our disunity prove? What, What does the world think when churches fight over colors of pews and kinds of music and flowers, etc., when bickering divides a church. John Stott wrote this in that fine book I told you about. We cannot proclaim the gospel of God's love with any degree of integrity if we don't exhibit it in our love for one another. Perhaps nothing is so damaging to the cause of Christ as a church torn apart by jealousy, rivalry, slander, malice, or preoccupied with its own selfish concerns. We live before watchful eyes, and they want to see if we're going to live our message that we proclaim. So I'll tell you what my prayer has been. As I went through this, and I go through a message, I always preach it to myself first. I want you to know that. I preach it to me. So after this week, I have a prayer personally. Number one, I want to be renewed in love. I want to be renewed in love. I want to have such a tender love for God's people uh, that is seen. And, and I, I just got to tell you why I make that a prayer. I make it a prayer because it is easy to get jaded in the ministry. I've already shared with you in a couple sermons ago how many people leave the ministry. And primarily because they get so jaded. So easy to get jaded in the ministry. You know why? Because we see so much stuff. We hear so much stuff. We meet people all week long, all day long. I got this problem. I got that problem. Problem, problem. See it. And and after a while, we can become very thick-skinned to it. Uh, I want to remain tender-hearted. This is my prayer, that I be renewed in God's love for His people. And then, number two, out of that love, that I would be ready to enter into conversations in the Starbucks at the store, laundromat, car wash, wherever I'm at, 
enter into meaningful conversations that will help rescue people out of darkness and be brought into the light so they can also experience his love. So what kind of church does Jesus envision when he says, I'm going to build my church and he prays for it? One that will radiate God's glory. One that will reveal God's truth. One that will rescue those who are opposed to him. And one that will revel and rally around the love. And it first must be seen with us. There was a little boy who was praying Sunday evening before he went to bed. He bowed his head and he says, Dear God, Lord, we had such a good time at church today. But boy, I wish you could have been there. How horrible for Jesus to be outside knocking to get in. So, let's turn the spotlight for a moment from off of the church organization in general. Because after all, we're not called to be church connoisseurs, judges of organizations. Let's turn the spotlight on ourselves. Let's just think about our own life. What do you personally live for? What are you living for? What are you aiming at? What do you want more than anything else? Have you been rescued? Do you belong to Christ? Is His plan what's going on in your life? If not, do something about that today. Give Him your heart and let let a whole new start happen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your love for us. We pray, Father, in Jesus' name, that we would be the people that not only you desire, but you will equip us to be. You will give us what is necessary to do. And Lord, we just so thank you that we have a family, that we have a body, that we have a group that we love, that love us, where we can grow and be equipped our families can be nurtured our children can hear of who Jesus Christ is thank you for that Lord we love you in Jesus name Amen thank you for listening to this service from Calvary of Albuquerque if you would like more information about what you've heard in this message or about Calvary of Albuquerque please visit our website at www.calvaryabq.org If you have made a decision to follow Christ or would like someone to pray for you, please leave a message with our prayer watch line at 505-344-3658. Thank you and God bless.